Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 173, Rivers Rising. Before I pile ahead, some notices for you. Remember to check out the Agora Podcast Network and the associated website inspiringly named agorapodcastnetwork.com. And do check out this month's featured Agora podcast, which this month is the history of England. So if you're listening to this, well done. If you're not listening to this, well, weird. So, last time which seems several centuries ago, but which isn't, we had the dramatic and breathless romance of Edward and Elizabeth Woodville. The whole thing came as an enormous shock to the political community, not just the King's Council and, of course, Warwick. Kings in England just didn't marry English women. They now married foreign royalty and married to create powerful dynastic alliances, not because, God forbid, they fancied someone. And so, the received history of Edward's reign has become a story of the Woodvilles and their evil, greedy scheming. Elizabeth is cast in the role of a cold-hearted, scheming, vain, greedy beauty, carefully schooled by her needy parents to use her beauty to entrap a notoriously susceptible young man. That once her foot was in the door, Elizabeth gave full vent to her vanity, a diva, inflicting her haughty, overbearing nature and love of grandeur and power on everyone around her. And close behind her came a horde of slobbering, ravenous beasts that she called her family. Hundreds of them, grunting, squealing and slobbering as they thrust their dribbling noses into the trough of state, oozing over the good, honest folk of the court, pushing and shoving and elbowing them out the way, depriving them of their birthright as Elizabeth took advantage of her feckless and helpless husband's better nature to gain for them the lion's share of the honours and privileges until he couldn't move without tripping over a Woodville's jewellery. In fact, one high-grade gag has come down to us over the centuries from the King's jester. Richard Woodville, the head of the family about whom we've heard so much, would soon be made up to Earl, and he took the name Rivers from an old family name derived from Redvers and so became Earl Rivers. The jester remarked that the rivers were so high he couldn't escape through them, which, of course, is a nice pun. Slightly laboured, but then it's the way you tell them. So that's the general story we're supposed to believe, and I think we owe it to the Woodville clan and to Elizabeth to think about this terrible reputation and whether it's really deserved. Now, obviously, we need to keep our sights set high to think about the big themes in all of this, the big questions that drive the future of mankind and the wealth and health of the planet. Questions like, specifically, was Elizabeth Woodville really a looker? I have recommended, I think, Sarah Gristwood's book, Blood Sisters. 
And Sarah has a go at summarising the medieval view of beauty in the words of a contemporary writer, Geoffrey of Vinceau. Let the upper arms, as long as they are slender, be enchanting. Let the fingers be soft and slim in substance, smooth and milk-white in appearance, long and straight in shape. Let the snowy bosom present both breasts like virginal gems set side by side. Let the waist be slim, a mere handful. Let the leg show itself graceful. Let the remarkably dainty foot be wanton with its own daintiness. Blimey. Snowy bosom, virginal gems. Not asking for much, then. I can imagine Monsieur Vincent writing on the same subject about men. Maybe modelling his views on my own well-tried and tested approach to making myself attractive. If he had, maybe here's what he would have said. Let his gut hang prodigiously over his belt and brush gently against his knees. Let one be able to take many fair yards of west in many handfuls. Let his white and considerable buttocks fight together as do ferrets placed within the sack. And emit the so wondrously full wind that evinces the finest nature of the real man. Sadly, Vansor and I have never met, but anyway, it has to be said that our Elizabeth does seem to have fitted the female bill. Not the male one, by the sound of things. It's, of course, impossible to know, because 99% of the time the people who wrote all of this knew better than to diss the looks of the mighty. There was that outstanding example I seem to remember quoting about the noble daughters, brutally described as being as plain as an owl, but that was really most unusual. So much so, in fact, that there's quite a lot of fibbing going on. Your medieval bloke appeared to have favoured golden hair, and so Margaret of Anjou, when she stepped off the ferry, was described as fair, while in fact most other descriptions agreed that she was dark. So my point is, there's a bit of bias and toadying going on, but at least for Elizabeth we have a portrait that pretty much seems to confirm that she was close to that medieval ideal described by our friend Van Saw, despite that hideous medieval obsession with foreheads. The accusations against Elizabeth's character are based on really very little evidence. So there's that original meeting, of course, standing under the tree to attack Edward's attention. Well, that was the medieval world for you. It was definitely who you knew. No one got anything done without the help of a great lord. Elizabeth at the time was in trouble. And so it's a little hard to blame her for going about finding a sponsor, just like anyone else would have done. And, of course, it would be a little bit unfair as well to hold her refusal to be the king's sovereign lady without putting a ring on it against her. Then there's the wedding and the coronation. The chroniclers describe in fine detail the grandeur and richness of the occasions, which, to be fair, was par for the course. That's what you expected of the great back then. The concept of the unpretentious aristocrat in holy jumpers cut no ice before the 1950s. Much has been said about the banquet after Elizabeth's churching, and it does sound just a little bit deaverish, I have to say. Her mother had to kneel in front of her for an hour. Her noble ladies-in-waiting had to kneel until the banquet was over, which was about three hours, which is 
a lot of kneeling. Detractors point out this is more than a little bit demanding. Defenders point out that this is court formality. This is a very special banquet. The choice may not have been with Elizabeth. So, a greedy, rapacious, vindictive woman. What's the evidence for that? Well, it's twofold, really, and certainly one of the stories does have legs. A Lancastrian merchant, Cook, was pursued unfairly through the courts by the Earl Rivers, with a bunch of trumped-up charges that wouldn't have stuck to a stick insect, driven home by bribing the courts. After Cook had been squeezed to £14,000 or more, Elizabeth then demanded the Queen's gold on top, an ancient privilege. And actually, with this one, while the original vicious pursuit was not Elizabeth's, demanding the Queen's gold at the end of it does feel like giving the poor man who's down a bit of a shoeing while he's down there. Though it has to be said that Thomas Cook was to prove a Lancastrian through and through. But in other ways, there's really no evidence that the Queen's love of grandeur outran the normal demands of the job. In fact, she ran a significantly smaller household than did Margaret of Anjou and spent less money each year, though it has to be said that selecting Margaret as the benchmark is hardly setting the bar of thrift very high. But certainly, my point is, Elizabeth was nothing out of the ordinary. And then there's the story of the Woodvilles as a whole, this stream of Elizabeth's undeserving and porcine relations, taking the food from the mouths of the poor, decent, downtrodden magnates. There's no doubt that the royal marriage resulted in the presence of a lot of Woodvilles at court. Part of the trouble was that Elizabeth simply had a big family. I feel a web page coming on, but of course at the head of it you have Richard Woodville, Elizabeth's father. Richard and wife Jaquetta had 14 children. Yes, 14 children. So Elizabeth had 13 siblings to look after. And then Elizabeth had two sons from her first marriage, Thomas and Richard Gray, though still very young at the time of her marriage. What happened then was the arrival of a wave of new relatives that Edward really had to look after. The problem was that the magnates viewed the Woodvilles as rather beneath them, and Edward couldn't have allowed the Queen's relatives to be looked down on and to be unable to maintain their status as relatives of the royal family. But give the number of them, hate it or loathe it, this group began to suck up all the available patronage. So, there's a list coming up. Sharpen your pencils, summon up the blood, and imitate the action of a tiger. Margaret, sister of Elizabeth, is betrothed to the heir of the Earl of Arundel. John Woodville, 20 years old, married the enormously wealthy heiress Catherine Neville, described at the time as a slip of a girl in her 80s. In fact, she probably wasn't quite that old, but there's an element of cynicism there and no denying. In 1466, Catherine Woodville married Henry Stafford, heir to the Duke of Buckingham. Anne Woodville married William Bourchier, son of the Earl of Essex. Eleanor Woodville married the son of the Earl of Kent. Mary Woodville was betrothed to the heir of William Herbert, Earl of Pembroke. In October 1466, Elizabeth actually bought out Anne Holland from a betrothal to George Neville, heir to the Earl of Northumberland, so that she could be betrothed to her son, Thomas Grey. Now you can see that this is a lot of marriage, and I'll come back to that, but outside of arranging high-status marriages, the Woodville clan don't get a vast amount. Richard Woodville, father of the bride, became Earl Rivers in 1466, as we've said, and also became Treasurer of England. 
His eldest son, Anthony Woodville, had a reasonable income as Lord Scales anyway, and BTW were going to call him Scales from now on, by the way. So when you think Scales, think Anthony Woodville. Oakley doakley? He was given the Isle of Wight, but that's all. And then there's the odd thing that gets given as time goes by, but really the striking thing is that in terms of big offices or grants of land, the Woodville Hall is pretty much in the pant area. What I'm saying is that actually looked in the cold light of day, the Woodville family had to be looked after, and in fact Edward and Elizabeth were pretty restrained about how they did it. That there really doesn't seem to be any evidence that the Woodvilles were unduly rewarded, and really, with the exception of Thomas Cook, not very much evidence of the Queen being unduly grand or greedy. Elizabeth and Edward's relationship seems attractively close. They spend a lot of time together in comparison to many monarchs as we can see from the movements of their households. We strongly suspect that Edward played away plenty. But given that there were ten royal births by 1480, there seems to have been plenty of playing at home, if you will. So that's all fine then. Hurrah! Everyone's happy. Peace, light and truth and justice rules. Except, of course, you can now immediately forget everything I've told you as completely and utterly irrelevant because hate it or loathe it, it seems pretty clear that the Woodvilles were hated and loathed. Because these things are, of course, not always logical. After all, I am utterly convinced that the photocopier at work has a personal grudge against me, which is clearly impossible since it's a machine, but that doesn't stop me fearing and loathing the thing. For one thing, the Woodvilles simply sucked up too much of the marriage market for too many years. All those magnates and their wives jockeying for position amongst the well-known round of magnates. And then suddenly this new bunch appear, elbow everyone aside and start snapping up all the eligible heiresses and heirs from nowhere. And they were considered NQOCD into the bargain. That, on its own, would be bad enough. The medieval world was not a place for equality. Nobody liked a self-made man or a parvenu but then the nobility feared their influence as well. There were simply too many of these Woodvilles. They formed a block at court, the influence of the Queen with the King was undoubted, and the influence of her family very strong as well. As an example, there were few men who had as much influence as William Hastings, the King's special confidant, a power at the centre of the court. So, when the merchant adventurers in London needed support to reduce a particular fine from the King... They went straight to Hastings, of course. Hastings said he'd help if needs be, but he said that really, if they wanted a helping hand, the people they needed to talk to were the Queen, the Marquis of Dorset and the Earl of Essex. Those were the people who'd make a difference. Now by this stage, this is 1480 BTW, the Marquis of Dorset was the Queen's son, Thomas Grey, and the Earl of Essex was married to Anne Woodville. There's no doubt about it. The Woodvilles were now a power in the land, the magnate game had been seriously disrupted, and nobody in the political classes enjoyed it one little bit. And then, of course, Mum. Mum was furious. I mean, livid. Cecily Neville was used to being obeyed. Obviously, she was also used to worrying about her children being killed, but she was used to being obeyed. She had spent quite a bit of time working out what she should be called in the new regime and had hit upon My Lady the King's Mother. But mm, that didn't really seem grand enough, so she'd gone for the rather grander Cecily, the King's Mother and Late Wife unto Richard, 
in right, King of England and of France and Lord of Ireland. Now that sounded very nice, but even Cecily could see that it was something of a mouthful and could seriously slow conversations down. So there was a shortened form available of Queen by right. Simple but effective. So, my point is that Cecily was used to being obeyed and had a reasonably grand view of herself. And she'd enjoyed the thought of little Edward, little teddy baby, being around to be instructed in the affairs of state by mum. And then, here was her son marrying this, this jumped-up Englishwoman, this, this impoverished daughter of a nobody, this, this widow... Actually, worse than a nobody, that nasty little man who'd snared the Duke of Bedford's wife. And worst of all, who'd fought against her husband all his life. Oh, Edward, how could you? How could you? Cecily had a point. She herself admitted to her son that there might be, quote, nothing to be misliked in the person of this widow. But Cecily was used to playing the great game. The widow Elizabeth was seriously not quite our class, darling. She brought no foreign influence at all. Edward had surely thrown away a massively valuable diplomatic chip. And in fact, Isabella of Castile would always hold it against Edward that her negotiation to be his wife was dead in the water from some low-born, widow, English fancy woman. And what would the Earl of Warwick think? He'd spent all that time in France cooking up the deal with the most suitable boner of Savoy. He must be livid. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Cecily showed her displeasure in spades. Elizabeth's coronation was duly grand, with all of London decked out in splendour and all the nobility there to watch and accompany her and a full day of festivities with the ubiquitous tournament. Cecily was not there, too busy washing her hair. Edward stood up for himself, which might have been part of the real problem, of course. He'd had enough of being enthralled to his mother, he argued, politely and reasonably enough, that he really ought to be able to choose his own wife that marriage was a spiritual thing, Mum, and he should be able to follow the guidance of God, who, after all, was responsible for the two of them loving each other. Edward was being sneaky in the way only a son can be, playing on his mother's famed piety. He trod carefully, so, for example, Cecily was ensconced in the royal apartments, and he was very careful to build Elizabeth a separate new palace, rather than displace his old Mum and make things worse. So, the question is, had Edward boobed? Had he blown it in a fit of lust? Well, interesting you should ask me that, because there's more to commend Edward's decision than you might think, and so here's the case for the defence. First of all, it seems to me that the country as a whole accepted Elizabeth well enough. It was the purely political types and magnates that struggled with the whole thing. The idea of the first English queen since Billy the Conk slung Matilda over his shoulders in Flanders was pretty acceptable, given all the trouble foreigners had brought. 
Look at that Margaret of Anjou, for example. She'd been nothing but trouble and expense, done as absolutely no good whatsoever. The widow thing was actually a bit of a problem. The kind of assumption was that the Queen should be a virgin. But there was nothing written down exactly. Secondly, Edward could claim that Elizabeth's status was by no means as low as everybody seemed to be making out. After all, through her mum, Jacquetta, she was connected to crowned heads throughout Europe. And indeed, Edward played this one as hard as he could. And as for the objections of Cecily and the Earl of Warwick, well, that might actually have been the best thing about the whole thing. Edward was proving that he was no cipher. He was his own man, and he would rule in his own way. He would be king. And if he'd tamely married Warwick's nominee, he might as well have forgotten the idea of independence. And then in creating a new power block at court of the Woodvilles, he was creating a group that was dependent on him, rather than being swayed by traditional ties and gratitude to the Earl of Warwick. So that's all fair enough. And during Edward's lifetime, he was able to manage much of this, with one rather large exception that we'll come to. But there's no doubt he offended convention to a degree, and in creating a new affinity at the centre of court life, while he may have had no choice once he decided that Elizabeth was the one for him, created an imbalance in political life that had consequences. Critical to all of this was, of course, Richard Neville, the Earl of Warwick. After the initial shock, Warwick tried to be grown up and handle this within his world view as the mentor of the king, the first man in the land. But it was hard. First thing he'd had to do, of course, was write to King Louis of France and explain what had happened. For the kingmaker, there were two things about this. Firstly, it blew a big hole in his reputation to be the real arbiter of English policy. Second, peace with France rather than alliance with Burgundy began to be an integral part of Warwick's reputation and position. Unwisely, Warwick allowed foreign policy to become a battlefield between himself and Edward, rather than simply a matter for state policy. Unfortunately for Warwick, he was essentially hit by a series of blows that continued to dent his personal prestige. Actually, very little of what happened would have affected any other magnate. If you step back and think about any other reign, the decisions that Edward made about his foreign policy and the distribution of patronage can only be really offensive to Warwick in the context of Warwick's pride and self-image as the kingmaker, the man who made Edward who he was. The first blows came quickly in 1466. Richard Woodville's promotion to Earl Rivers was irritating. Then Margaret Woodville was married to the heir of the Earl of Arundel. Now, one important bit of context here is that Warwick and his wife Anne had not produced any sons, only two daughters, Isabella and Anne. The future of Warwick's dynasty depended on his girls marrying well. And equally, the pair were heiresses of the type that made baronial lords and ladies dribble. Warwick would feel that in the normal run of things, he'd have had his pick for his girls. So when the Woodvilles started to corner the marriage market, that hit him where it hurt. And then, on October 1466, came the incident with Anne Holland, who was betrothed to the son of Warwick's brother. Elizabeth Woodville played the massive sum of 4,000 marks to John Neville to get him to break the engagement so that she, Elizabeth, could have Anne for her son Thomas. And I doubt a no was an option. For Warwick, this was yet another affront to the dignity of the whole Neville family. 
But never mind. Warwick had an even better option, to marry his eldest, Isabella, into royalty, to the king's brother, the Duke of Clarence. Now, there's a suggestion in his actions that Edward didn't entirely trust his brother Clarence. Clarence was desperate to play the magnate's game, thoroughly blown away and impressed by Warwick. So eagerly, of course, Clarence embraced the idea of marrying ha, one of the richest heiresses imaginable. It all looked to be a perfect solution. But Edward said no. Warwick was incredulous. All around him, Woodwills were being married left, right and centre. Then Edward said no to him, the man to whom he should be unendingly grateful. Why Edward said no is not entirely clear, but mistrust of his own brother could well be one. Clarence was already proving to be in love with magnificence and in politics. Presumably, not wanting to see Warwick get any more powerful was another good reason. So, nonetheless, Edward behaved as though nothing was the matter as far as he and Warwick were concerned. As far as he was concerned, Warwick had nothing to worry about. In material terms, he'd had a mass of offices and lands that he'd been rewarded with, and he could hardly imagine doing more. But on the face of it, actually, Edward was quite right. So, despite his disappointment, King Louis of France continued to flatter and cultivate Warwick. As far as Louis was concerned, the failure to deliver a peace was one thing, but causing discord and confusion amongst the English was far more important. And so he encouraged and cultivated Warwick. Edward, meanwhile, mildly encouraged Warwick to go and talk to the French about peace, but meanwhile followed a different path without telling him. And he can't help feel a bit for Warwick. Even if he was totally obsessed with his self-image, Edward did rather duck the issue and let things drift, rather than taking Warwick into his confidence. So this drifty, nebulous approach became pretty obvious pretty quickly. In 1467, Warwick went abroad with an official delegation, visiting both the French and the Burgundians. While he was away, all his work was thoroughly undermined by Edward, since Edward received a delegation from Burgundy in London. Essentially, both of them, Warwick and Edward, had different views, but never managed to thrash it out. This delegation to London was from the natural son of Philip, Duke of Burgundy, called the Bastard of Burgundy, alternatively Le Grand Bâtard, or the Big Bastard. He had a first name, Anthony, but nobody bothered with that. They just called him Bastard. It does feel very odd, doesn't it? The name's Bastard, Big Bastard, has such different connotations these days. Anywho, the Big Bastard came to fight in the lists with the greatest of English knights, namely one Anthony Woodville, Lord Scales. Edward made sure he was welcomed, wined, dined, fated and glorified everywhere he went. All London gathered to see the spectacle outside Smithfield. On the first day of the tournament, Scales rather disgraced himself by lancing the bastard's horse, which was definitely considered to be a low trick. On the second day, they went at it hammers and tongs with axes with such fury that Edward eventually had to step in and stop them. But essentially, in all the pageantry and the ladies and the colour and silver and gold prizes, the basic message from Edward was clear. Burgundy are friends, not food. Warwick's brother, George Neville, Archbishop of York and Chancellor of England, was furious at this display of friendship towards the enemies of his brother and committed, therefore, a cardinal error. He refused to deliver the Chancellor's address to Parliament. 
George had made the same mistake Louis had made, assuming that his brother really did rule England and that the king would just do as he was told and would never dare to punish one of the all-powerful Neville clan. At this very same time, Warwick was involved in conversations with Louis that came as close to treason as you can without actually saying you'd like to chop the head off your king. Basically, Warwick handed out commitments that England would be France's friends, that they would not fight with them, whether Edward wanted it or not. During the conversation, a small worm, white and wriggly, was introduced into Warwick's ear. What would happen, mused Louis, if Edward did not play ball? If, after all, Warwick was unable to assert himself? Did Warwick know, he suggested, that Margaret of Anjou wrote to him constantly? It was an outrageous, outrageous thought, of course, and equally, of course, Warwick dismissed the very thought with complete contempt. And instead, an offer of alliance was put together for Warwick to take back to England. Now, Warwick had actually been empowered by Edward to conclude an agreement, though everybody knew it to be a dead illuminated manuscript without the king's seal. So Warwick took the cautious path. Rather than sign something right there, he'd take it back home to his boss. At which point, dramatic news arrived. Philip of Burgundy was dead, and his son, Charles the Bold, would now be Duke. Such news broke everything up. The bastard set off from London to go back home. Warwick sailed for England, taking with him the French delegation that brought the shiny new offer of peace. And not just the offer of peace with France, but the chance for Warwick to reimpose himself on King Edward and on his kingdom. The first thing he heard about when he got back was that the bastard had been there, welcomed and flattered by the king and the Woodvilles. But that was bad. The next thing he heard was that when George Neville had refused to go to Parliament, he'd received a visit from Edward and William Herbert. Calmly, they demanded his seals of office, and as a result, George Neville was no longer Chancellor of England. This was worse. All this left was the French delegation and the offer of peace with Louis this was the big one. Warwick's chance to re-establish his primacy. The French delegation was welcomed at court by George, Duke of Clarence, the king's brother now 18 years old and ready to join the magnate's game. And the next day they were received in great state by the king, surrounded by his advisers. Hastings, Rivers, John Woodville, Scales. Edward listened to the French. He went to consult in a separate room with the English magnates about their proposal, and then didn't bother to come back. Rivers sent the French back home as gracefully as possible, but Warwick was livid, furious at the coldness of the reception, but also at all those Woodvilles all over the place, like flies, like mice. For six weeks, the French delegation stayed, doing their best, only to learn that Edward had signed a treaty. He'd signed a treaty with Charles, Duke of Burgundy. And now it became clear to Warwick, Edward had sent him to France purely to get him out of the way. Warwick now had a decision to make. He had had a very clear signal from Edward about who was and about who wasn't boss. Warwick could now buckle under. He was enormously wealthy, and while his influence would never be what it was, it's very unlikely he would ever have been excluded from the great council of state around the king. He could remain a central influence of the realm. But he had to give up his dreams and even expectations of dominance. Next week, we'll hear about the decision that Warwick, the kingmaker, makes.
clue there, and where it leads him, and the English kingdom. In the meantime, I have some donators to thank. My blessed monthly donators this time. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Jim, Jubal, Cool, Matthew, Brad, Dan, William, Nancy, Oak, Bernard, Mary, David, James, Russell, Henry, Mac, Alan and Simon. And then this month to Liam, David and Philip. All very good and I pant, I pant with excitement to hear about what might happen next week. But we'll have to wait. So in the meantime, good luck everyone and have a great week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit kia.com to learn more. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.